Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are, and this is the second part of our two-part treatment on Theodore Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. So we encourage you to listen to the first session, which is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, or any of a host of podcast values. Many thanks. Be in touch. Be C at stationhill.org. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it's hard to tell what his his um, worldview or his values are because so much of the uh, manifesto is critique. Uh-huh. Social. Oh, you mean it's not positive you know he doesn't say here's what i believe yeah or th- this is what what i was protecting or this th- this is um a way to be human that i think is closer to our personhoods or brings us closer to the earth there isn't much of a, um, a positive vision in there I, I want there to be i do find um his critiques some of them very intriguing could we talk about some of them yeah could let's get in them. yeah i think we should yeah, I mean, one thing that uh, I think this is in section 30. Huh. And um, I thought this was marginally interesting in that he points out that the um, what's his, his concept, the leftist that he mm-hmm. in, in section 30, he's he's critiquing the left leftist revolutionary. And by um, leftist, I'm hearing neo, what I call neoliberal or liberal mm-hmm. um and he he argues that the the le- the problem with the leftist revolutionary is that they never will challenge the fundamental values of the of the society that th- they will engage in revolutionary behavior but um in a muted and modest way and he uses the example specifically of um racism that the the focus will be on on social ills like racism um, sexism, but it's very rare that the uh, the leftist revolutionary will go for the larger economic structure mm. or the um, or the technological infrastructure present in the society. That it's um, 
it's a it's a muted revolution that all the leftist activity is occurring with perhaps positive intention but it is not addressing the malefic underpinnings and context within which these ills and um, inequalities and prejudices and so forth are occurring and it's not it's not and that what ted is advocating is is the total elimination of technology of industrial technology right seems like it i mean it's not a little unclear what he how how much technology he's against he's definitely it's a little bit like you know the republican party was started uh, what Abraham Lincoln believed was no more spreading of slavery. They weren't the Repo- original Republicans. They weren't anti-slavery. They were against the spread of slavery. And it's almost, I get a feeling like that from uh, Ted, that it's almost like he's against more technology, but is he against the level of technology we already have? I guess so. I but think, at what point, do you, how do you, how far back do you go? I think tribal the, life? I think what he's... um. What he's cr- critical of is a particular use of um, technology. Technology. Mm-hmm. I think the the concept that's in there is the technology of socialization. Mm. Te- technologies that um, I, seduce us into and keep us in the, the the uniculture, this very narrow experience of society and culture that um, will dictate our consumerist patterns our self-perceptions, um, hmm. who we interact with, how we interact. That the, uh, I, I, I think it comes, at least the, uh, the socialization part comes up in section, I believe, 28. Part 28. Part 28. Paragraph 28. The, so left, the leftist of the over-socialized type tries to get off his psychological leash and assert his autonomy by rebelling. Is that it? I think, think yeah. Thinking of, oh no, it's 26. Oh, okay. Socialization can lead to low self-esteem, a sense of powerlessness. Yeah, this over-socialization. It's yeah. over-socialization. This is a term I think he invented. I've never seen it anywhere else. Right. One of the most important means by which our society socializes children is by making them feel ashamed of behavior or speech that is contrary to society's expectations. If this is overdone, or if a particular child is especially susceptible to such feelings, he ends by feeling ashamed of himself. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the way I understand what he's saying is that the left is over-socialized. In other words, everybody is told, you should never lie, you should never cheat, you should be kind to everyone. But most people do lie. They do cheat. They, they, uh, he says this somewhere. Oh, he says it in the same part. He says the majority of people engage in a significant amount of naughty behavior. They lie. They commit petty thefts. They break traffic laws. They goof off at work. They hate someone. They say spiteful things or they use some underhanded trick to get ahead of the other guy. The over-socialized person cannot do these things or if he does do them, he generates in himself a sense of shame and self-hatred. So there are people that take what I would call the superego 
too seriously. And that's what he's saying. Leftists are told, oh, you should never lie and cheat. And the leftists are like, oh, no, I will never, ever lie and cheat. I won't be a hypocrite like everyone else. And then when he sees that society lies and cheats, it infuriates him. And he gets angry because he's he can't deal with the fact that the world is imperfect, that no, not everybody obeys these stupid socialized laws that we are are given. No, you're not supposed to take them literally. He's over-socialized. He takes them too literally. And and as a result, he feels constantly inferior because he's never as good as he's supposed to be. You can't be that good. And then he takes that out on anger towards the society as a whole because they're racist, because they're classist, because he claims it's for these moral reasons, but it's really his own shame and guilt for being over-socialized that he's projecting onto society. This is what I understand his analysis. Kaczynski's analysis. And actually, mm-hmm. Kaczynski very, very uh, sweetly says at one point, well, yes, a little of it is more a real moral feeling, but most of it is just uh, this sense of humiliation and shame. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds quite... It's, it reminds me of Foucault. I'm sorry, I'll let you speak, Sam. I, I think I may have... But it reminds me... Yeah, 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 no, not at all. It reminds me of the whole Foucauldian, you know, the, the, the docile body and the docile shape and how um, various technologies are, are employed to regulate experience of the self, to regulate personality, a lot of it guilt and shame-inducing, medications, um, media, you know, the, the, what Foucault calls the, the, episteme, the episteme, right? Which, Which is, is the, what? It's like, the, I, I understand it as the zeitgeist of a specific place and time mm. that um, is enforced and reinforced through various technologies that are um, present at the everyday level in everyday interactions like like phones or um, medications that mm-hmm. have a headache or yeah, particular sources of authority like going to your doctor, your therapist, the episteme right. through those localized centers. And that this the self is created from uh, from these uh, these dynamic systems. And uh, Foucault is also another critique, a critic mm. of Marx. And this you know, he's, he's also refusing to accept the kind of traditional Marxist uh, analysis, as I see it. Yes, I mean one thing is I believe Ted is also pointing to the kind of collectivist philosophy and. I guess, a sort of neoliberalist scheme, that this is maintained only through technology and that Mm. all of these social mores are present in order to induce a conformity to a technological way of life, is my understanding. And that that technological way of life interferes with what I thought perhaps is Ted's central concern, which has to do with freedom, actually. Hmm. Hmm. And controlling your own breath. That that real freedom is uh, convenience to food. Um, different modes of shelter, and, you know, avenues for a central problem with TED, actually, 
getting, as we used to say, laid or, you know, <laughs> being an, you know, getting together with men and women and uh, other, you know, people that share our own gender feeling, you know, or antithesis, well, how it all works. Yeah. It, all, all his freedom um, didn't seem to bring him to a place of much tranquility or right. oneness with the mystical union of things or I don't know. Well, I mean, what I was saying last time is I think he was fine until he took that walk and saw that road encroaching mm. on his little uh, paradise in the woods mm. of Montana or whatever mm. it is, the prairies of Montana. And um, maybe by implicitly he was happy before that. I mean, I, w I would say that uh, for me, it seems to me that he's more looking for happiness than for freedom. That's what that's how I see it. That, or maybe it's just just my tendency to see uh, technology and particularly this this electronic world that we live in now is just extremely alienating and uh, and as a result depressing, and that everyone is basically miserable. Everybody's miserable. They're looking at their phones. They're playing little games, and you know, and they don't seem really satisfied in any way. Mm. I mean, for me, the way in which what I'm reading about Ted, and I, I haven't gone through and read the manifesto, but you know, just picking up like little you know fragments from the bomb, is that it does eerily conform. Um, <laughs> With sort of my sense of what, how I would characterize that, the core alienation that we experience as codicils, as cogs of 21st century Western Civ. And that is that technological society divorces us from our fundamental human distinguishing characteristic and gift which is the ability to make things, huh. you know, is that this society that we live in, almost everything is made for us and everything is displaced to money. You pay for things. You don't make your things. You use money. You do some dopey job, you know, working in uh, within the system so mm -hmm. that you can earn money so that you can buy that which in a perhaps closer to the ground in a more free society, you'd make for yourself. It does you know, bring make to mind your own his, way. His, it brings to mind his bombs, which mm -hmm. you know uh, are absolutely uh, handmade creations of himself. Mm -hmm. You know, in a sense, the type of art that he's doing mm -hmm. that that is is highly. Um, personalized you know i mean how many people know how to make a bomb i mean we live in a society it's got more bombs come to think of it than anybody in the history of the world and nobody knows themselves well only a few nuts i don't know actually how to make their own bombs you know it's one of those things that we that we collectivize in a sense mm. yeah i know i i agree and it's kind of eerie um that these bombs, I watched part of some video that I found on um, online about mm. Ted, and 
I saw these bombs, and they're kind of made out of wood. They have pipes involved, and then these wires, and they remind me a little bit of kind of an art object. Um, you yeah, know, particularly nowadays. One, I mean, you you go to a gallery in uh, in uh, Chelsea, and you really see stuff that looks just like that. That's kind yeah, of chic now. Have, is to like build a machine, you feed it food, and out of it comes feces. And it's this, like, elaborate mechanism. You know, it's just a machine, but it's now considered art. Yeah. They look a little bit like Cornell boxes, you know, uh, Joseph <laughs> Cornell. Yeah. And then the other thing is, of course, I mean, if you write Ozymandias, um, the poem Ozymandias, which is a sonnet, as we've discussed, and, like, oh, I've written this this poem, and then... Isn't it true that perhaps Shelley wanted somebody to read it? And then the process of reading it would induce in that person, in that reader who's taking these words in and allowing them to connect, allowing the fuse to ignite. Doesn't that induce a little bit of that experience that Emily Dickinson talked about where when mm. she knows it's poetry, if the back of her head falls off, that yeah, when you write like when you write like the super sonnet, don't you kind of want it to explode? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because yeah. because I'm in a band, you know, and after we perform, you know, me and Lawrence, they're like the other guy where we write the songs together, we will say to each other, "Yeah, we really killed today. We really murdered. We really." Uh, terrorized, we really uh, hit them with the shrapnel of our music. You know, like it's yeah. a joke between us, but it's yes, there is an element of aggression uh, in uh, art. In, one could say, yeah, or indeed, as we've discussed, you know, there's a little bit of that feeling of William Burroughs, who said, "I, I failed as a writer because I've been unable to write a sentence that." If you were to read it, would kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, there's kind of an element of like uh, every writer. I mean, why does the Unabomber send out bombs? Why does he kill people? So that uh, his uh, his essay will be published. You know, like like there's some part yeah. of every writer is like, yeah, I'm just gonna blow up the New York Times book review until they publish my brilliant essay on uh, gerunds you know it's like it's a writer's uh you know fantasy writer's malevolent nightmare fantasy is you know kill enough people and they publish you <laughs> yeah well one of the things sparrow that you did and that for which you are um <laughs> renowned is that i think there exactly. was a period of time maybe a year or i don't know how long that you stood outside of the <laughs> New Yorker offices and protested that they didn't were unwilling to publish one of your poems. I mean, that's yeah. really a misunderstanding of what I did, but I like all the, I mean, and it's really not <laughs> truly famous, but uh, it is in my Wikipedia page. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I like all the myth mythic versions of what I did. I mean, I was part of a group, am part of a group called the Unbearables, and we organized these demonstrations in front of the New Yorker, uh, protesting the fact that they didn't publish our poems. Uh, 
and I was interviewed by the New York Observer, and they asked me, why are you doing this? Um, and I said, uh, well, they should publish us because our poetry is just as bad as the poems they publish, which I was kind of impressed that I was able to think of that so, you know, spontaneously. And there was an article about that. And then for some complex reason, mostly because I went to the New Yorker, I was part of the delegation that went up to the uh, office, you know, the waiting room of the New Yorker offices. I sat in the corner writing poems. I wrote like 27 poems in maybe 12 minutes that were something like, you know, one of them was, uh, Dear New Yorker, please publish this poem. It is really great. Love, Sparrow. They were like that. And I submitted them to the New Yorker. They rejected them very warmly and said, you know, we are much more open to downtown poetry than you realize. So then I sent them more and more poems, and then they eventually accepted them and published them. But it was with a collective that I did it. it was, and we did it twice. And we happened to do it on um, Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> twice on Pearl Harbor Day. So mm. it was the day that will live in infamy. So there's a little bit of Ted in you. I guess that's all we really wanted to come to. Uh, <laughs> Can I, I say I have to be the one of us three that, that, that bears the brunt of being the most like Ted? Can I? Yeah, no, we're working on this profile. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. I would like to say something about the literary. And this is what irks me about the, the Unabomber and uh, mm. also about the manifesto as a text. That mm. I think that this was written by a highly intelligent person, but I don't feel the, the influence of the humanities in the manifesto that mm-hmm. that it, it has a feel of a very complicated equation um full of uh, mathematical variables um it traffics in absolutes at times and there is nary i don't think there's a single literary allusion or reference to a text other than the analytical music of one man's mind which, which is very sophisticated, but it lacks the humanities, and as a result, lacks humanity. That there's something wow. uh, missing um, that I would need to, I, I feel, take this extraordinarily seriously. Although I agree with a lot of the critiques, and like it's very captivating and interesting and um, prescient. Yeah. I agree with but that. I, I mean, wonder if keeping in mind the... that Ted was a really damaged cat, he did have, I saw in this thing I saw, his bookshelf in the hut um, had a copy of Henry David Thoreau's collected works. Uh, that's yeah. really interesting. That's and I wonder if he, I wonder if he read Wittgenstein, because I know when I first read some famous book by Wittgenstein, I was really impressed with the fact that he numbered all the paragraphs, or each new idea was numbered just exactly the way the uh, Unabomber Manifesto is numbered. And that's uh, how theological um, texts are numbered. Uh, like a papal like, uh, is always numbered into sections. Oh, yeah. What's his name? That great Thomas Aquinas, you mean, like that? Or, Thomas, or like the, the current Pope, Pope Francis's encyclical on the environment. Laudato Si, which came out what in 2016 or 17, if my memory serves correct, mm-hmm. that uh, that's numbered. They're always numbered into those uh, like uh, thought units. 
Yeah, I, I was just reading yeah. the part of the manifesto, the Unabomber manifesto, that's about uh, aristocrats. I don't know if you got that far. He's talking about how people who have no real need to achieve anything are often uh, depressed. And uh, and he gives an example, and I think he's talking. About, I'm not. I don't. It's not that clear, but I think he's talking about people in the modern world today, where everything is kind of supplied for you. Like and he talks, and he says one one um, uh, exception is Emperor Hirohito, who uh, developed uh, an interest in marine biology and became quite an important marine biologist. And he says this very uh, approvingly, and. And and that's one moment where you realize, well, this is written by a scientist, and you know, for whom science is important. And one of the things he hates about the left is that the left is anti-science, essentially anti-science. So he's a funny guy who is like against industrialization and and pro-science. I mean, I must say, I had kind of the opposite feeling. Like, isn't it interesting to read something that's a big kind of philosophical statement? Written by someone who's a scientist and not from the humanities, who has a that other way of looking at things. Yeah, know? I think it is interesting too. I think that, that I never get to. Yeah, I don't read scientists much, you know, so I don't really know how they see things, you know, in this well, kind of over analytical way. Before, you know, in the, the pre-modern world, um, um, science science was all written out by hand, right? Galileo, mm. the early modern scientist Francis Bacon. Um, it, science only moved from um, the linguistic to these numerical signs in the, the, um, the in the past few centuries, I think, in intellectual history. Yeah, I read, uh, uh, I didn't read it, but I once took out of the library when I was living in New Jersey, uh, took out of the New Milford Library. It was probably the only book worth reading in the New Milford Library was uh, Newton's book on optics. And I just kind of would look at it and read little parts of it, and it's really well written. He's a beautiful writer. All right. So the question I have is, so do you have thoughts around Ted's central thesis, namely the overthrow, the disintegration, the unrooting with extreme prejudice technological society and the return to individual and small units of society. What do you think of that thesis? I believe that I think that's his sort of main aim is to awaken a minority within our society that's willing to overthrow the system and then to do so. I mean, I find myself thinking about it really in Marxist terms because I feel like I see this because I consider myself some kind of neo-Marxist or something, and I see this as an attack on Marxism. So I I look at it this way. Let's say Kaczynski is right. Suppose you have a completely uh, just, equitable socialist society where no one is exploited. Everyone has a voice in uh, in their workplace, you know, there's no more bosses. Everything is shared equally. Would people be happy in this uh, industrial or really post-industrial uh, society we live in? And I think it's quite possible to say, no, they wouldn't be happy because we are kind of slaves. I mean, the, to me, the problem is that since Kaczynski wrote this, it, it sort of strikes me. He's talking about industrial society. 
And really, you know, now we're in a whole other phase with this electronic society where everybody is, even us at the moment, are kind of, you know, uh, chained into these screens that are all connected and everybody's living this vicarious life through symbolic digital experiences. I mean, it does seem like it sort of drains the humanness out of life more than these questions of what Marx, more than Marxist alienation, there's a new type of alienation, you know, which I would call maybe electronic alienation rather than industrial alienation. And it seems like, you know, Ted is right. On the other hand, there's too many people and people like it. Nobody wants to get rid of it. So, uh, you know, then, uh, so, so we're not going to get rid of it. <laughs> yes. I, I missed just so, you know, just to parentheses, I missed some of that because my oh. system went down. Although the recording seems to be maintaining, I'm just being forced oh. out. I mean, I'm wondering whether it's doing that because I have a bunch of Unabomber searches in my system and Big Brother's, oh. uh, yeah. That could, that could be. Looking over my shoulder. That's possible. Mm. The, um, the thing that, you know, I believe that Ted felt he was reading the tea leaves and was projecting the increase of social violence. Um, mm which is a phrase I, I believe that means all of those array of activities in our lives that are buttressed or backstopped by the promise of suffering or the promise of violence if we deviate from the norm. Hmm. And that, you know, social violence is pervasive in our lives you know, is an implicit mm. aspect for, you know, why we hoe the line and don't don't act within our fully human possibility, which is one that includes lying, cheating, stealing, <laughs> all these mm. all these attributes that are um denied us. Yeah. And I believe that Ted may construe himself uh, there in the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, that he's a kind of John Brown, you know, picking up on <laughs> Thoreau and his, um, you know, advocacy of, of what John Brown did, that he considers himself to be a kind of, uh, kind of a messianic role in terms of pulling us back from becoming robots. I think that's, I kind of agree with that. There's an interesting part early in the Unabomber Manifesto where the where he says, actually, industrialization may eventually reach a point where it's not that uh, uh, terrible. It won't create that much suffering. But in order to get there, there will be an immense amount of suffering on the way. So it's not worth it, he implies, which is, I mean... The main problem, there's a part we haven't talked about where uh, Kaczynski talks about population density and how uh, dis destructive that is to people. People should live far away from each other, which I, to me kind of makes me think psychologically of his isolation with hives and maybe the isolation of being a prodigy um, or maybe some kind of autistic tendencies that he has. But if the problem is population density. How are you going to have a non-industrial civilization, uh, 
you know, uh, where uh, there's millions of people, there's not enough room for everybody to live in a log cabin. Plus, people don't want to. But I mean, you know, it, it seems like the only way his ideas could work would be if about three quarters of the human race died out. So, you know, that uh, I don't think uh, is a realistic goal. Yeah. And he doesn't go into the practicalities of what we're going to do once we pull the plug. I guess that's part of his idea of what is freedom is let it fly, like see what happens. Mm. You know, the positing some kind of formal scheme of what would happen once technological society is removed would be, you know, and in some ways it's sort of quote-unquote responsible of him not to posit some sort of utopic vision Mm. because that's very much what got us to this place perhaps Mm. yeah i mean i want to say one more thing about like my analysis of his uh uh, psyche which is i did notice a couple of um suggestions of uh, homophobia uh, there's a point where he's talking about uh, uh, leftists and how they embrace whoever is most despised in society. And he says, uh, blacks, uh, poor people, and uh, and he mentions homosexuals who are repellent. He uses the word repellent for homosexuals. This is kind of late to do that. This is the mid-90s, uh, you know, maybe in the you know, 1904, you might say that, but I mean, I don't think that was very commonly believed. And then at some point he's talking about the um, tribal life and he says, well, everything is not perfect in tribal life. For example, among the Native Americans, there was a great deal of transsexuality. <laughs> transsexuality, that's that's bothering you, you know? And uh, so, you know, what's it to you? And, uh, I mean, I'm always big on seeing everyone as a repressed homosexual. I don't know if that's clear if you listen to thousands of these podcasts, but I am uh, leaning towards that thesis with uh, with Ted. It's possible that Ted, even as he's in stir, 23 hours he's um, on his own, and then he gets one hour, my understanding Mm. is, out there at the supermax where he's brought outside of his containment and put into another containment that just has a skylight. It has this big skylight and he's not actually able to communicate with other supermax prisoners. And there are 1400 steel doors within this supermax prison. The one thing I want to say relative to Ted's sexuality is it's possible that he remains a virgin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, who else? Because I'm reading Thoreau lately. Quite possibly Thoreau was a virgin at death. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Because it's, um, you know, he was 27 years old. He was back in Illinois. He was working in this foam factory, this foam rubber factory that his brother was managing. And he had like a little kind of girlfriend thing. And at that point, which was his last sort of amatory relationship, as far as we know, as far as I know, I haven't done all the research. He never had sexual congress with her. She kissed him. And then 
she kind of walked away at that point, claiming that they didn't have sufficient common interests to pursue a deeper relationship. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. So just putting that out there. It's hard to find a woman that wants to destroy industrial civilization. That's what I've noticed. Yeah, they're kind of more together, for sure. You don't see it on people's, you know, um, okay Cupid profiles. (laughs) No, the other thing I wanted to say about McVeigh, because we were kind of writing him off last time, is uh, there was a period where I uh, had a subscription to Vanity Fair in the late 90s because some friend of mine became some friend of mine who actually propelled me to fame for my anti uh, New Yorker exploits became an editor at uh, Jim Wendolph, I think, uh, at, at Vanity Fair, and he gave me a free uh, subscription. And Vanity Fair is like the most addictive magazine on earth. I don't know if you know that. And uh, and there was these artic- an article or articles about uh, Gore Vidal and Timothy McVeigh, who became uh, avid correspondents and, you know, had a real rapport. You know, Gorbadal was a big uh, radical, and I think he felt that McVeigh was misunderstood and I think was not as right-wing as people thought, Lee. And it was just a kind of, it was just towards the end of uh, Gorbadal's life. So, you know, there might be more to McVeigh than uh, we think. And then they killed him before we could find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, McVeigh was the ground zero of the um, the right wing, uh, you know, or extremist groups that the proliferation of which, you know, we've watched exponentially increase in the last uh, years of this, you know, the last uh, president. One thing I wanted to mention is that Kaczynski falls within, you know, my thesis of the failed white man also. <laughs> I guess I, I did want to talk about Samson Gruber, who was a, a kind of a, an important figure in my high school. I went to the Bronx High School of Science, graduated in 71. Samson Gruber was our valedictorian, gave a scathing attack on society instead of an encouraging speech at the graduation. He was... Uh, had. He was a brilliant kid, had been, uh, had skipped a, at least two grades, I guess, and he was tiny, really short, and, uh, and, you know, looked, you know, 10 years younger than the rest of us. And so he was like a Kaczynski, you know, someone who really did not fit in, but had been promoted because he was so bright. And then, and the next year, I think just a year later at Princeton, he fell off a roof. Apparently, that was how it was described. He fell off a roof and died. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, he was the Icarus of uh, Bronx science. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.